You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 396 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we talked about what happened on the first day of the Battle of Chickamauga on Friday, September 18th, 1863. We said that Braxton Bragg, after seeing his previous plans misfire for one reason or another, had closed his latest set of attack orders by saying, quote, the movement will be executed with the utmost promptness, vigor, and persistence. Well, that was certainly Bragg's intent, but we also said, tongue-in-cheek, that in keeping with the finest traditions of the dysfunctional and hard-luck Army of Tennessee, the initial Confederate movements on September 18th were late, confused, and poorly executed. To start with, Bushrod Johnson's column was to kick things off by crossing Chickamauga Creek at Reed's Bridge, but Johnson had never received the latest set of orders from Bragg, and so, since he was following an earlier version of the plan, he started out on the wrong road. An aide discovered the error and rerouted the column, which then had to countermarch several miles before even nearing Reed's Bridge late that morning. Then, with no rebel cavalry on hand to screen their advance, Johnson's Confederate infantry unexpectedly ran into the enemy, not at the bridge, but some distance east of it. This was Minty's Federal Cavalry Brigade, which was posted along Peavine Ridge, covering the approach to Reed's Bridge. Meanwhile, upstream, or south of Reed's Bridge, the other two Confederate columns that were also to cross the Chickamauga, likewise, ran into trouble. Those columns, commanded by William H.T. Walker and Simon Bolivar Buckner, found they were using the same road for part of their approach march to the Chickamauga, which resulted in a bit of a traffic jam and a corresponding delay. As Walker's infantry finally neared the creek and Alexander's Bridge about noon, some rebel cavalry informed Walker that the bridge was held by Yankees. The Yankees were the mounted infantry of Wilder's Lightning Brigade. When Walker's Confederate infantry attacked at about 1 p.m., they were repulsed by rapid fire 
from the Lightning Brigade's seven-shot Spencer repeating rifles. Finally, after a couple of unsuccessful attempts to storm the bridge, Walker moved his column downstream, where they crossed the Chickamauga at Byram's Ford, thus outflanking Wilder's stubborn Federals at Alexander's Bridge. In the meantime, at Dalton's Ford and Thedford's Ford, south of Alexander's Bridge, Buckner had faced little opposition, but still he accomplished virtually nothing since his orders were to cross the Chickamauga only after Walker and Johnson were firmly established on the West Bank. Like many other generals in the army, Buckner wasn't on the best terms with Bragg, and so he was unlikely to stick his neck out and show any initiative when Walker's and Johnson's crossings ran into trouble. As a result, by nightfall on the 18th, only two of Buckner's six brigades had even ventured across the fords. Meanwhile, Bushrod Johnson had finally forced a crossing at Reed's Bridge late that afternoon. When John Bell Hood arrived on the scene around 3 p.m., he'd assumed command of Johnson's column, per Bragg's orders. Johnson's force included some of the newly arrived reinforcements from Virginia, and Bragg wanted Hood in charge of them until James Longstreet himself showed up. Besides that, this was the first time Bushrod Johnson had led anything larger than a brigade, while Hood was an experienced division commander. So that was another reason Bragg wanted Hood to take over command of this column. In any case, by nightfall, when all was said and done on the 18th, the Confederate infantry columns had barely managed to cross the Chickamauga, let alone cut the Lafayette Road and sweep down upon the Federal left at Lee and Gordon's Mills. But despite the delays that had been experienced in getting across the Chickamauga that day, Braxton Bragg, after dark on the evening of the 18th, still thought his plan was workable. That is, Bragg thought that the part of his army that had crossed the creek would be in position to sweep south the next morning, crashing down upon the Yankee left flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills. Bragg ordered Cheatham's division from Polk's Corps to move north, with discretionary authority to cross the Chickamauga, quote, as circumstances may demand, end quote. Those were rather vague instructions, but Cheatham would go ahead and cross his large four-brigade division at daylight at Dalton's Ford. Hindman's division of Polk's Corps remained on the east bank, opposite Lee and Gordon's Mills, to continue pinning Crittenden's Federals in place at that spot. Bragg ordered D.H. Hill to shift his corps closer to Lee and Gordon's Mills to support Hindman and compensate for Cheatham marching off. But, apart from moving Cheatham and Hill, Bragg did nothing during the night. He assumed that the next morning the Yankees would still be right where he wanted them, with their left at Lee and Gordon's Mills, and that his forces on the west bank of the creek would sweep down and roll up the enemy flank at first light on the 19th. While Braxton Bragg slept soundly on the night of the 18th, no doubt dreaming of a resounding victory the next day, a series of decisions made by others would ensure that the fighting on the 19th 
actually bore very little resemblance to what the Confederate commander had envisioned. We want to spend the rest of this episode talking about those decisions made by others that would significantly impact the course of the battle on September 19th. We've already mentioned that when John B. Hood, literally right off the train from Virginia, arrived on the scene at Reed's Bridge on the afternoon of the 18th, he took command of Bushrod Johnson's column per Bragg's orders. Well, after capturing Reed's Bridge, the Johnson-slash-Hood column of Confederates advanced a short distance to the west to a spot called Jay's Mill because that's where a fellow named John Jay had built himself a steam-powered sawmill near a little spring-fed stream. When they reached Jay's Mill, Bushrod Johnson and John B. Hood faced a choice. Which road to take? Straight ahead lay the Brotherton Road. About two miles on, it struck the Lafayette Road well north of where Crittenden was holding down the Federal's left flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills. The Lafayette Road, as it ran north, was the Yankee Army's most direct link to Chattanooga, so cutting the road was critical to Bragg's plan if the Confederates were to drive the Federal south away from Chattanooga and crush them in McLemore's Cove. So, from Jay's Mill, the Brotherton Road went west toward the Lafayette Road, but angling off to the left was the narrow Jay's Mill Road, which ran south, directly toward the Alexander House and Alexander's Bridge, where Walker's Confederates had run up against Wilder's Lightning Brigade. A moment of decision had been reached, because while Bushrod Johnson wanted to take the Brotherton Road, Hood wanted to head down the Jay's Mill Road. It's almost impossible to overstate how difficult it must have been for Hood to literally get off the train at Ringgold, ride straight to the front lines, and immediately take command of a column of troops involved in an ongoing battle. Certainly, John B. Hood was an experienced division commander, but on the west bank of Chickamauga Creek, he found a confusing landscape of dark forests, briar-laced thickets, gloomy groves of cedars, and here and there, cornfields scratched from the surrounding timber. He had no good map of the ground and probably no guide. Except for Jay's Mill, a half-mile west of Reed's Bridge, there were no landmarks to orient him. Hood's instructions from Bragg when he stepped off the train at Catoosa Station were to, quote, open communications with General Walker, end quote. From Jay's mill, Hood knew that Walker was supposed to be off to the left, that is, to the south, so Hood overrode Bushrod Johnson, and he decided the column would head down the Jay's mill road toward Alexander's Bridge, where he expected to link up with Walker, and in doing so, carry out the orders from Bragg that he had been handed when he stepped off the train. Hood's decision was understandable, but it may have cost the Confederates a chance to deal the Yankees an early and perhaps decisive blow. Moving out the Brotherton Road, as Bushrod Johnson wanted to do, would have placed a strong force astride the Lafayette Road, two and a half miles north of Lee and Gordon's Mills well beyond the Federal's left flank. 
blocking the road on the 18th would have cut the Yankees' direct route to Chattanooga, which was one of Bragg's key objectives. However, since it meant the Lafayette Road would remain open to the Federals, Hood's decision to head down the Jays Mill Road on the afternoon of the 18th had important consequences for the way the fighting would unfold the next day. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The delays the Confederates experienced in getting across to Chickamauga on the 18th had not only, essentially, cost Bragg an entire day, but on the Federalist side, it meant that William Rosecrans was now alert to the threat to the North, and, more importantly, he had been given time to react to it. As the fighting drew to a close on the 18th, Rosecrans was left with a clear understanding that significant rebel forces had crossed the Chickamauga downstream from Lee and Gordon's mills and were now poised to strike his left flank. In response, Old Rosie decided to send George Thomas and his 14th Corps on a night march, leapfrogging the lines of Crittenden's 21st Corps at Lee and Gordon's Mills, so that they would reach the Lafayette Road near the Kelly Farm, about halfway between Lee and Gordon's Mills and Rossville. Thomas's first two divisions, numbering about 10,000 men and six batteries of artillery, and commanded by Brigadier Generals John Brannan and Absalom Baird, marched through the night to arrive at dawn. Thomas's other two divisions would follow, and when reunited, 
George Thomas would have around 18,000 men with which to hold open the way to Chattanooga. With his orders in hand, Thomas wasted no time getting underway. For the men, the orders meant stumbling northward over rough and dusty roads through the darkness. To light the route and also warm the troops along the way, the men built fires along the road, fueling them with fence rails. The fires added their own smoky touch to the surreal atmosphere of the night march. After days of unpleasant heat, autumn was just beginning to touch the hill country of North Georgia, and the mercury that night plunged to near the freezing mark. In the ranks of the 17th Ohio, Captain John Inskeep said, quote, We were continually starting and halting, and it was impossible to estimate the distance correctly. The whole country was alive with soldiers pushing forward as rapidly as the narrow roads would permit. By the early morning of the 19th, the men of Baird's division had reached their destination and dropped down in the Kelly field to boil coffee and munch on hardtack. Brannon's men were still marching, but not far off, and would arrive shortly. One of Thomas's other divisions, commanded by Joseph Reynolds, had been delayed in its march and was still a couple of miles off. Then, through some confusion, Thomas's fourth division, James Negley's, was forced to remain in place until dawn before starting its march. Nevertheless, George Thomas, with Baird and Brannon and Reynolds, had nearly 14,000 men on hand or fast approaching the Kelly Farm as the sun rose on September 19th. It's important to understand that Rosecrans' decision to redeploy Thomas's corps to the north drastically changed the nature of the looming fight because as September 19th dawned, Braxton Bragg had no idea of what the Yankees had done. Exactly. Bragg awakened that day thinking the federal left was still around Lee and Gordon's mills when, in fact, thanks to Thomas's night march, the federal left had moved three and a half miles to the north to the Kelly farm along the Lafayette Road. Rosecrans' decision to relocate Thomas's corps radically altered the arrangement of the two armies because now, instead of Bragg's forces on the west bank of the creek being massed on the Yankees' left flank and in perfect position to crash down upon that flank at dawn on the 19th, a large federal force was massed on Bragg's own right flank. And even better for the Federals, Thomas's movement had gone completely undetected by the rebels. When the fighting started up again on the morning of the 19th, the fact that a large force of Yankees was now threatening his own right flank would come as a complete shock to Braxton Bragg. To understand how another couple of decisions profoundly affected the course of the fighting on the second day of battle, we must backtrack a bit and remind ourselves that, according to Bragg's plan for the 18th, when the rebel infantry crossed the Chickamauga that day, they were supposed to be screened by Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry. To back up even a bit more, prior to the Battle of Chickamauga, the overall mission of the Confederate cavalry had been split 
between Joseph Wheeler and Forrest, and it basically came down to Wheeler's force having charge of covering the Army of Tennessee's left or southern flank, while Forrest was in charge of covering the Army's right or northern flank. Okay, so back to the events of the 18th, when Forrest's job was to screen the Confederate infantry as they crossed the Chickamauga. However, that day, instead of having 7,000 men in two full divisions present, Forrest only had one brigade at hand, and that brigade, commanded by John Pegram, would contribute virtually nothing to helping the rebel infantry get across the creek. With regard to the absence of most of his command on the 18th, some of that was beyond Forrest's control, but he compounded his problems through the faulty disposition of his remaining men. No one could ever accuse Nathan Bedford Forrest of refusing a fight, but at Chickamauga, he was new to both Corps command and conventional cavalry operations. Prior to June 1863, the largest force Forrest had ever led was a brigade of roughly 2,000 horsemen. Now, though, he'd been jumped two grades and found himself in charge of nearly 8,000 men. Forrest had made his reputation as a raider, commanding irregular forces on deep incursions against Yankee lines of communication and supply depots. He excelled at those sorts of small independent operations. Forrest had far less experience, and so far much less success, in the traditional cavalry mission of scouting, screening, covering the front and flanks of an army on the move, and mixing it up with the enemy-mounted forces engaged in those same tasks. After failing to screen the rebel infantry columns as they crossed Chickamauga Creek on the 18th, Forrest blundered badly that night when he took his available cavalry back across the creek to camp on the east bank near Alexander's Bridge. That night, Forrest was responsible for picketing the Army's right flank, so his decision to withdraw his horsemen back across the creek is inexplicable. Forrest's decision not to scout and picket the ground beyond Reed's Bridge left the rebel army's right flank dangerously exposed. The 1st Georgia Cavalry did establish a picket line that night, though about 400 yards south of Jay's Mill, in other words, well below Reed's Bridge. That meant that when a brigade of Federal infantry from Granger's Reserve Corps at Rossville ventured down the Reedsbridge Road at dusk in a belated effort to support Minty's Union cavalry, they found only an eerie silence. There was no sign of Minty or any sound of combat. Minty, who apparently never received word that Granger was sending him help, had already withdrawn southward before this column of Federal infantry arrived from the north. Right. Well, the officer in charge of this five-regiment force, Colonel Daniel McCook, a member of the famous Fighting McCook family of Ohio, was an ambitious officer determined to win his general's stars before the war ended. Two of his brothers had already beaten him to it, Alexander McCook was here commanding the 20th Corps, 
while Robert had earned his star early in the war at the Battle of Mill Springs, before being killed by bushwhackers in August of 1862. In any case, here, when Dan found the approaches to Reed's Bridge eerily deserted, he sent out his brigade scouts to reconnoiter. Within a few hundred yards, they found rebels. The Confederate force that had crossed the creek at Reed's Bridge, the Bushrod Johnson slash John B. Hood column, had already moved on, following Hood's decision to march south and link up with Walker. But the rear elements from McNair's brigade of Johnson's division were still in the area. Dan McCook's scouts proceeded to quietly capture rebel after rebel until they had 22 prisoners, including members of the brigade band, complete with instruments, a Confederate staff officer, and several members from the brigade medical staff who had lingered behind in search of something to eat. With the enemy so near, a more cautious officer might have pulled back up the Reed's Bridge Road, but McCook decided to stay put in his advanced position and ordered his men to sleep on their arms and keep noise to a minimum. An hour or so later, Granger reinforced McCook with four more regiments led by Colonel John Mitchell, who placed his brigade behind McCook's astride the road. On the Confederate side, later that night, Pegram, in response to rumors Yankees were close by, personally led a reconnaissance patrol up Reed's Bridge Road and directly into the middle of the two Federal brigades. Upon asking the identity of this unknown command, Pegram realized he was surrounded by troops from Ohio and Illinois. Pegram kept his cool and managed to bluff his way out of trouble and then returned to his encampment across the creek on the far side of Alexander's Bridge. Word of Yankees being where they weren't supposed to be began to slowly filter up the Confederate chain of command. For his part, if Dan McCook got any sleep that night, it was with visions of a Brigadier General's star dancing in his head. You see, because all his prisoners seemed to be from one Confederate command, McNair's outfit, McCook conceived the idea that there was only a single enemy brigade in front of him on this side of the creek. And since the addition of Mitchell's reinforcements brought McCook's total strength up to nine regiments of infantry and two batteries of artillery, about 3,200 men in all, Dan McCook was sure that with a force like that, then come morning he could bag that lone brigade of rebels and earn his star. The several decisions we just talked about in this episode, when added to the delays experienced by the Confederates in getting across Chickamauga Creek on September 18th, set the stage for the titanic struggle that developed between the opposing armies on the 19th and 20th. As we'll see in the next show, the fighting that started on the northern part of the battlefield on the morning of the 19th completely derailed Bragg's attack plan and the battle deteriorated into a confused, day-long slugging match as both sides fed troops into the action piecemeal, reacting to circumstances. In the confusing landscape of thickets, brush, 
open woods, and occasional fields and clearings, hardly any officer above brigadier could see all his command at once, and even the brigadiers could often see nobody's troops but their own and perhaps the enemy's. The tangled landscape and rapidly changing circumstances would ensure that Chickamauga would be a classic soldier's battle, but it would test officers at every level of command in ways they hadn't previously been tested. As we'll see on the 19th, Bragg and Rosecrans will both try to conduct a battle while shuffling units northward toward an enemy of whose position they could get only the vaguest idea. There will be a serious element of confusion to the fighting on the 19th, as each army commander is never granted the time to make sure of the enemy's position or even of the whereabouts of his own troops. Afterwards, victory for either side would look simple when unit positions were viewed on a neat map. But on the ground, in real time, in Chickamauga's torn and bloody landscape, nothing was simple. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Decisions at Chickamauga, The 24 Critical Decisions That Define the Battle by Dave Powell. The University of Tennessee Press has a series called Command Decisions in America's Civil War, which is just what it sounds like, a series of books that explores the critical decisions of major campaigns and battles of the Civil War. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, as we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So, a big thank you to Lon B., Tim L., Ron J., Kevin F., and Neil C. And thanks also to Cliff F., Rich E., Nicholas G., David R., and Graham M. for their recent donations. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.